Welcome to Turf Dudes, show number 29. Plant ecology is fascinating. Considering how species become invasive, animals have an obvious advantage. They're mobile. Plants, on the other hand, they're stuck with what they have. Their distribution is limited by their rudimentary but often ingenious methods of distribution. Once distributed to a new location, invasive plants must establish, grow, and reproduce with only the resources available within the distribution of their root system. Goosegrass, a familiar weed of warm climates, is a current example of an old pest in a new place, and with new places comes new challenges. My name is Dr. Jeff Atkinson, and I'm joined today, as always, by Dr. Raymond Snyder. We serve as directors of agronomy for Heralds. Our guest today is Dr. Matt Elmore, Assistant Extension Specialist of Weed Science at Rutgers University. Dr. Elmore has researched and written extensively on topics related to weed management, herbicide tolerance, and factors which influence weed competitiveness. As goosegrass continues to expand in cooler climates, Dr. Elmore is leading research to identify new ways to control this problematic weed in turf types not typically encountered in warmer regions. We hope that today's episode will provide insight into strategies to manage this challenging pest as we move into a new growing season. Enjoy the show. So Matt, as we start to get into growing season, I guess we're getting an increasing number of questions specifically from customers more north than what we're used to about goosegrass and different goosegrass control um, programs, methods, et cetera. But before we get into all that, can you just kind of give us an overview of uh, the, I guess, the biology, ecology of goosegrass and maybe how that compares to something folks might understand in terms of um, crabgrass management and crabgrass biology? Yeah, sure. So uh, there's some similarities between goosegrass and crabgrass. They're both summer annual weeds. So, um, you know, in temperate climates like we have in the northern United States, they're going to germinate in the spring, you know, grow throughout the summer. They'll set seed late summer and then uh, the plants will be killed by the first frost. And so those those seed are what allow that plant to survive from you know, one year to the next. And usually we're, we're trying to target our control strategies around those seed, you know, if it was a perennial weed, it would be a lot different. Um, but because it's an annual weed, you know, there's, that affords you certain opportunities if you're looking at strategies for control. So um, some of the differences between them, though, goosegrass uh, germinates a little bit later than crabgrass. Um, typically, the soil needs to be several degrees warmer, um, you know, 65 degrees at least or so. Um, We've kind of found, you know, you need some some high temperatures in the in the daytime uh, in the 80s to really get goosegrass germination. Whereas crabgrass typically comes about, you know, three, two to two to four weeks before the goosegrass. So um, uh, it, it seems like goosegrass needs warmer temperatures to develop even after emergence, but we we haven't really figured that part out yet. Yeah, and goosegrass seems to thrive more in heavily trafficked areas. Um, it's not really well understood whether that's a result of compaction or um, or simply just wearing away the desirable turf grass. Goosegrass does not seem to be very competitive in a dense stand of turf, which is similar to crabgrass. Um, but, you know, in those high traffic situations, you, know, you look at a golf course or an athletic field, those highly trafficked areas, you typically don't see crabgrass, but you do see the goosegrass. Um, so, like I said, whether it's the compaction or just that that physical wear that goosegrass can exploit more so than the desirable turf grass, I think that's something we need to figure out. But um, you know, it does seem to enjoy those compacted, sunny areas. 
I got a question about the soil temperature. So for yeah. those turf managers that are in regions in which their soil temperature never gets below that threshold you noted, 65 or so. Yeah. Does that mean every day is a potential day that goosegrass could germinate? So if the, so are you talking like maybe like a Florida type climate? Florida, Southeast, Hawaii. Yeah. yeah. When you get into those really subtropical, tropical climates, it can almost be a year round. It can be a year round weed problem. Um, so yeah, a lot of the strategies that we've investigated are really useful for these temperate climates where we, we have really defined, you know, seasons for goosegrass growth, but you know, in, in Florida and those Gulf kind of regions, yeah, you, you, you kind of, you can be battling it all year. It can germinate, germinate all year. So, so in terms of the, the distribution of goosegrass, what, what does that look like uh, in the mid-Atlantic region and in your world and in yeah. the like? Yeah, um, it seems like, and this is a lot of this is anecdotal in terms of, you know, where it's really most problematic, just talking with turf managers and, um, but it's been very problematic in the mid-Atlantic for a number of years. Um, and more recently, it's sort of been moving north. So that would bring us into New Jersey where we kind of Maybe we're the northern border that what you call the transition zone, but you know moving farther into the northeast um, And then you start to move to Long Island and you know those sorts of areas and I think it it is problematic in many cases there um, But not quite as entrenched as it is uh, in in here in New Jersey in the Philadelphia area um, And as you kind of move west and you get to those cooler climates it, it certainly is a problem I think possibly an emerging problem, but I I don't think it's nearly as severe there in terms of if you look at number of maybe properties that are dealing with it. Um, it seems like it's one of those weeds where if you if you have it, you really uh, are battling it and trying to control it. And then if you if you don't have it, uh, you know, consider yourself lucky or if it's maybe confined to, you know, cart path edges and or along sidewalks and that sort of thing. Um, I guess, you know, consider yourself lucky. But in many cases, it's it's really overrun properties, um, and that's true, again, more recently in New Jersey, and then I think it's it's kind of moving northwards and, and westwards. Not, not exactly sure why that is that it continues to move, but um, we have some some ideas, I think. But I think the for sure it's it's moving moving north. You know, it's mentioned to me by by lots of turf managers is you know this is a newly problematic weed for me and something that. 10 to 15 years ago, I didn't even give a thought to, uh, but now it is uh, higher on the list of weed issues. Does it seem as though we've maybe controlled another weed and this is just, you know, taking over that niche or is it? Changes in chemistry that's being used over the years? Yeah, I think those are both, those are both potential reasons. Um, you know, as we continue to, you know, to bring new chemistries to market and, move away from older chemistries that have multi-sites of action, you know, we're moving towards single site of action. Um, and even, you know, among the, the, the newer products, they have things they're, they're more, they're very good at and maybe things they're weaker in. And so to really get broad spectrum control of a lot of weeds, a lot of times you would have to tank mix, you know, or uh, apply multiple active ingredients throughout the year. Whereas maybe 30 years ago, we didn't have to, especially if you look at something like MSMA, right? Um, that, Use of that, especially after the restrictions uh, has gone down, uh, you know, I hardly hear much about it in, in the cool season turf 
region. Um, and so you look at a chemistry like that that um, probably has several sites of action and also more importantly controls a, a, a broad number of weeds. So, you know, we might have been spraying MSMA for crabgrass control, but actually picking up goosegrass and mm -hmm. sedges and things like that. And so now that we switch to, okay, well, I know I need to use X chemistry for crabgrass control because I have that. Well, maybe now the goosegrass is, is kind of slipping through. And, you know, with these annual weeds, as they as they start to establish themselves more on the course, the seed, they can start to get entrenched, you know, in the seed bank and that sort of thing. And, and the, the problem grows exponentially every year. I got a question that you noted about earlier about the the goosegrass plant unable to tolerate the cold or frost or or something like that. How long does that generally have to last? That frost event or that cold event for that plant to to really uh, check out? Do you know? Yeah. yeah, that's a good question. Um, I don't know that I have a good good answer. It, it it's one of the things I have noticed though. Sometimes is if the plants haven't actually started to produce seed, maybe because they germinated later in the year. It seems like they can kind of uh, keep growing even through minor frost. But but once we get a heavy frost, at least in the northeast, you know, once you get some good nighttime temperatures in the 30 or below for for a few hours, that really seems to do it. Sometimes those light frosts it might not kill them completely. But usually, regardless, by that time of year, the, the soil temperatures have dropped, and so um, there's not typically a ton of plant maturation or seed production that goes beyond that point. But yeah, we don't understand a lot about that. Um, we don't understand a lot about, you know, how how uh, quickly does that seed mature? You know, if you look at a goosegrass plant, how quickly does that seed mature on the plant? You know, one of the cool things about POA, well, cool, I guess, if you're POA, but not if you're a turf manager, is that that seed can mature very rapidly on the plant. So even if you're mowing it off, say, on a putting green once every day, a, a good number of those seed can still uh, still become viable and survive. I, you know, with goosegrass, I don't think we know, you know, if, if it's in a rough and you're only mowing two times a week, is it, you know, and you're mowing some of that seed off, is it, when you're mowing it off, is it viable or not mm -hmm. compared to a fairway? Or say you spray an herbicide post-emergence, um, does that kill, you know, prevent the seed from kind of maturing and uh, becoming viable? Do you have any idea how long it takes from, let's say, uh, goose crash germination to the time it goes through the seed production cycle? So is it a four-week window, 60-day window? Any, any yeah. idea there? I don't I don't have a good answer on that. It seems like it could be growing degree day dependent. And there was some work from Clemson uh, the last few years that looked at looked at that. It does seem to be really, you know, growing degree day dependent more so than than um, day length or something like that. Hmm. Um, and it could vary widely across biotypes, too. But, you know, for us in New Jersey, it seems like by the time you get to late July, mid-August, then you start to get seed production. So... Um, you know, typically it's going to germinate mid-May, so that's that's a few months. But you know, in Florida where it's warmer, it might take less time. It's yeah, I don't have a good answer. I guess it's a good question. Well, thinking about uh, seed germination, what are some pre-preventative control options for the guys that, that have cool season turf? Yeah, um, in cool season turf, we're a little more limited than warm season turf. You you know, looking to traditional pre's. Um, Dithiapure, 
proteamine, pendimethalin, you kind of, those are typically grouped into one, one class, you know, the mitotic inhibitors or the root inhibiting herbicides. Those are an option. Um, another option, the, the other main option in cool season turf grass is oxidizon, which is Ronstar. And so that is a PPO herbicide and, and um, a shoot, you know, uh, inhibiting herbicide, essentially, if you're looking at a seedling. So that's kind of the challenge is that those are the, really the only two classes of chemistry. And if you look at the research that's been done, oxidizon is typically regarded as a more effective chemistry for goosegrass control. Um, but traditionally in the Northeast, you know, we've relied more on the mitotic inhibiting herbicides because um, I think there's a lot of uh, a good history of use and they're, you know, effective, safe products. Uh, and also, though, maybe it comes out of just that crabgrass has really been a problematic weed for, for many years. And so it's kind of all come from that. But yeah, from a pre-emerge perspective, we're really working with two modes of action, which is a little bit concerning, too, if you think long term about, you know, herbicide resistance management and those sorts of things where, you know, if you go to warm season turf, there's I wouldn't say there's a, a plethora of options, but there are more options, more modes of action. Yeah. So those are those are the two, though, the two main ones. Those. Mm -hmm. those. How about uh, post-emergence options? If you have some breakthrough or maybe somebody treats for crabgrass and has a breakthrough later in the season, what are some good uh uh, options for post control in cool season turf yeah sure good question so there's really three that are um, commonly used you know you've got uh, phenoxaprop which is a claim um, you've got pylex which is topramazone and then um, one that is used a little bit, but maybe more so in mixtures is is speed zone um, has some some efficacy as well but if you know, if we're looking at um, the main, again, we're, we're talking about really the primary products that we're using are two chemistries, two modes of action. You've got the you know, ACCase inhibitor, phenoxyprop or acclaim, and then you've got your um, your bleacher, which is Pylex or Topramazone. So in established turf, those are the two options um, primarily, yeah. Is there any real difference between those as far as growth stage? You know, does one more active on younger goosegrass versus older goosegrass? Yeah, that's a good question. So the the, the um, regardless of stage, um, as the plants get bigger, you're going to need to use more herbicide, and that I think is really one of the keys. If you're looking at controlling this weed, it's understanding where you're likely to see it and scouting those areas. So, um, you know. If you've decided not to apply a pre-emergence for for goosegrass control, um, you know you really need to be scouting from mid-June onwards potentially, and, and thinking about applying these products early before these plants start to tiller, uh, because as they mature, you're gonna you know more herbicide is required or multiple applications are required to get control, um, and especially in creeping bentgrass. The goosegrass plants will outgrow those typical those rates that you're you you can apply to bentgrass very quickly. Um, so with a claim, you know the rate range goes from all the way from three and a half ounces to the acre, which is the bentgrass rate. That's the maximum bentgrass rate that typically controls leaf stage plants. So you know if you're not scouting, you're probably not going to see a leaf stage plant. 
Um, it, it goes all the way up from three and a half to 39 ounces to the acre at the max rate. Now that 39 ounces is going to be for rye grasses and tall fescue, um, somewhere in the middle there, bluegrass. Um, but, you know, 39 ounces is what you're going to need on a plant with, with several tillers. Uh, that would be typically, you know, mid-July through mid-August, that, that, that type of situation. So you, your, your rate increases by 10x as that plant goes from a leaf stage to uh, a plant with five or seven tillers on it, which is wow. pretty dramatic. But yeah, a 10x increase in, in chemistry used. And of course, you can't go above three and a half or so ounces in, in bentgrass. So if you get behind, you're going to need to make multiple applications, you know, on a two to three week interval to try to catch up. Um, the Pilex, your rate range is, goes from a quarter ounce in bentgrass to an ounce and a half in uh, other species. At a quarter ounce to the acre, you'll get control of plants that are, um, you know, in the leaf stage just before they start to tiller. And maybe, you know, you'll pick up some tillered plants at that rate. But once those plants get two to three tillers, you know, you're going to need to increase that rate. Um, but, you know, once you get to an ounce, ounce and a half of Pilex in many cases, uh, it's very effective even on plants with many tillers. Um, so both are very effective chemistries, especially when the plants are smaller. Um, and the other thing to think about is, you know, what are the environmental conditions when you're making those applications, um, adjuvants, things like that. So one of the things that we've done in collaboration with Tennessee is to figure out basically that, you know, these plants need to be well watered and they need to be actively growing when you make that application. And if they're not, you should expect less herbicide efficacy. The herbicide won't work as well. And I think, you know, that's what happens a lot of times is you get inconsistent reports of, well, it didn't work or it worked. And, and I think that could be one of the main factors is were the plants well watered, actively growing? Um, because, you know, basically in, in low soil moisture, you know, if those plants are experiencing drought stress during the heat of the day, they are, the herbicide's not going to be as effective. And the other thing is adjuvants are really important. And so just to check the label on that. Got a question. Do can or do turf managers in your region um, include more than one chemistry in the tank when attempting to control goosegrass, for example, in, in the southern regions, they'll include sometimes a, a little bit of sulfentrazone or something like that to increase the efficacy of, of what they're trying to do. Is that an option in cool season grass? It, yeah, it is an option sometimes. I think um, being careful with those tank mixtures is is important because, and especially um, when we're in creeping bentgrass, um, we have done a little bit of work with tank mixtures of um, Speed Zone and Pilex, and primarily that just reduces the bleaching that you see on the goosegrass. But that's not something you can do in creeping bentgrass. It is an option that we've found uh, ha has efficacy and utility in you know bluegrass ryegrass tall fescue um it's not on either product label so it's one of those things that is not uh prohibited but it's not supported by either product label at this time that is probably the one we've looked at the most another one is triclopure um that seems to reduce the bleaching to the goosegrass as well um i've seen i've heard some reports that it reduces the bleaching to the bentgrass but um you, know, you have to be careful with triclopyr and bentgrass, so it's not something we've looked at. The, the triclopyr rates in bentgrass, you know, we're looking at an ounce or two of triclopyr per acre, whereas typically for broadleaf weed control, you're, you know, you're going to apply the, the turf lawn at 32 ounces to the acre. So it's, it's low rates, 
that would be the only other the tank mix partner that I've I've heard about. It's just not something I can comment a whole lot on. Something that maybe is worth looking at that we have not is tank mixtures with, like you said, with sulfentrazone. Um, you know, sulfentrazone does have activity on uh, tiller st- or you know leaf stage, kind of small goosegrass plants. We just have we haven't evaluated it enough to know where it, where it fits in there. But it, you know, it certainly is something we should probably do more work with because it's a, an alternative mode of action to the the the, the bleaching. Uh, type mode of action and the the ACCase mode of action. So it's it's certainly something we should we, we probably need to look more into, especially in ryegrasses and bluegrass. Yeah, call, kind of along those same lines of future research. Are there any other topics or things that you're hearing from superintendents in the field that say, hey, this might be something that we need to take a take a look at in, in the future? Yeah. So we are. In the process right now of trying to better understand resistance to pre-emergence herbicides in the Northeast, we are basically submitting it for publication now, but I think fairly confident that there's a lot, that there is strong resistance to dithiopyr um, on some golf courses in the region. And so in that instance, uh, it renders dithiopyr, you know, essentially ineffective for goosegrass control. It's still works for crabgrass and all that, um, but it necessitates that you switch to another mode of action like oxidizon. Um, I, I suspect that that could be one of the one of the reasons that this weed has become more problematic because, you know, I think a lot of times with pre-emergence herbicides, we get really comfortable with, okay, I use, you know, X every year. It works well. So, you know, you do that 10 or 15 years. And uh, it seems like goosegrass has this ability to you know, adapt to the same herbicide strategy being used over and over, and eventually it, you know, develops mutations that allow it to resist the herbicide. And, and so that is something that we're working a lot in right now. Again, we've, we've, we're really sure of it um, from a couple golf courses, and then we've done some sampling, some broader sampling in the region that, that suggests uh, this could be a, a widespread problem. Uh, that is something we're trying to, to better understand right now. Um, but that, you know, that's a problem because it might render all the mitotic inhibiting herbicides not not effective. Um, so wow. that's one thing from the herbicide perspective. Obviously, we have to have good herbicide tools for weed control. You know, it's a real key of integrated pest management. Um, the other side of things is trying to understand what are the non-chemical factors that are going to make, uh, you know, give us a better chance at fighting this weed, essentially. So... Things like competitiveness of the turf grass, um, you know, we kind of talked about it earlier, but I think we need to understand a little bit more about, you know, what are the environmental conditions that allow this weed to really start growing rapidly and compete with our cool season turf grass? What are the temperatures that it grows grows quickly at? Is it really needy in terms of light, you know, that light getting down through the turf grass canopy? And maybe that's why we see it in these highly trafficked areas. Um, you know, the other thing is, have we selected for certain biotypes on these golf courses, maybe golf course or biotypes of goosegrass that um, are less drought tolerant or more drought tolerant or, um, you know, how do fertilizer applications play into that, uh, just, you know, t- t- into its competitiveness. So, you know, certain turf grass species are certain species more competitive than others. You know, one of the things that seems common is that 
Um, it certainly is a problem in bentgrass fairways, but it seems to be more problematic in ryegrass fairways. Um, and it could just be that lack of canopy density during certain periods of the year, the lack of thatch or something like that. I think there's more we don't know, like anything else, there's more we don't know than what we do know. But, I, you know, if, if I'm looking at the next five to 10 years, I think we really need to understand how much of a problem is herbicide resistance in the region. Um, but there are, it's not just herbicide resistance. You know, there's other things um, that are going on. You know, how do, how do climactic conditions play in? And uh, one of the things that seems to happen is, you know, if we get a really severe weather year where we get, you know, disease that comes in late in the season, something like gray leaf spot, it seems like goosegrass really seems to take advantage of that. And as those things start to become more frequent, potentially, if, you know, if climate change is happening or whatever, um, you know, I look at the summer of 2018, we had a really bad, you know, mid-August through mid-September where high temperatures, rainfall, storms coming from the southeast that brought, you know, gray leaf spot issues, pythium issues. And then it seemed like goosegrass took advantage of that. And then so once it kind of gains a foothold there, you know, it establishes the seed bank, you know, then it, it just becomes harder to manage and, and more entrenched and maybe can continue to move move on to other places. Career's worth of work there for you, so that's good. <laughs> yeah, I think I think it'll it'll keep us busy for sure. So <laughs> I guess the last thing I want to bring up today is a little bit of a change up from goosegrass. Yeah. Uh, Raymond noticed that there was a paper recently published titled Annual Bluegrass Weevil, Paclobutrazol and Overseeding for Annual Bluegrass Control and Cool Season Turfgrass. Yeah. And just kind of curious about some of the, I guess, the major takeaways from that research project. And maybe just kind of overview of, you know, what what you guys were attempting to do with uh, with that study design. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, that was um, a student, Katie Deal, who just graduated, I guess, actually about a year ago with her master's degree. That was her her thesis work. Her objective there, we really wanted to understand a little bit more about could we start to utilize annual bluegrass weevil for annual bluegrass control on a golf course. And, you know, just like a lot of our ideas that we end up researching, you know, most of the time it comes from the practitioner, from the, the turf manager. And so, you know, there, there are some turf grass managers that uh, instead of trying to be completely preventative with their annual bluegrass management, you could say, um, have elected to use a little bit more of a, either a no control in some instances, but more often maybe sort of a let's let's let the the annual bluegrass weevil cause some damage and then we'll come in and, and treat it so that was sort of what we evaluated here was we wanted to understand and this is speaking just to the first generation because i think of of the weevil i think once you get to those summer generations i think it changes a little bit uh, mostly in terms of their their selectivity for annual bluegrass you know that, that we saw that we've observed and I know that our, our entomologist here, Dr. Koppenhofer, had seen for many years. And so basically what we looked at is, okay, um, let's look at three three insecticide programs. Then we're going to layer that with, with TrimIt, which is a, a very effective annual bluegrass management strategy for, uh, especially for fairways and, and bentgrass. And then also we wanted to look at uh, Caribbean bentgrass overseeding. So we looked at kind of those three things all layered on top of each other. But the first one was and probably the most critical was the, the weevil program. And so basically we compared a, an industry standard kind of in, uh, preventative insecticide program. So we wanted to look at, okay, let's try to do our best to control those annual bluegrass weevils. Um, that's kind of a control. 
And on the other side, our control is let's not spray any insecticides for the entire year. Um, and let's see how much how much damage they cause. And then the kind of our practitioner focused program was, OK, let's let them let those annual bluegrass weevil larvae. So we let the adults come in, lay their eggs. You know, they, they prefer to lay their eggs in annual bluegrass. So those larvae start to develop and eat the annual bluegrass. Um, as those larvae start to get bigger and start to really cause visible damage that, you know, a superintendent would notice. Then at that point, basically we used a turf quality score. But once the once it would make, you know, a superintendent uncomfortable with the kind of damage they're seeing and start to uh, impact playing quality, let's come in and spray an insecticide for annual bluegrass control to arrest the weevils and, and let that turf grass recover. And let's see if we get, you know, make some progress in terms of annual bluegrass control. Um, I think what was interesting is, one is, you know, just to see in person how selective the weevils are for annual bluegrass in bentgrass. You know, occasionally we'll see some, some damage um, to the bentgrass, particularly with the summer generations, um, where I think the annual bluegrass is less, uh, is not maybe quite as prevalent. I'm not exactly sure. Well, again, one of the things we observed in the spring was how selective that annual bluegrass weevil is uh, for POA. And, and it, you know, the damage can manifest very rapidly, you know, in a couple of weeks. So, you know, very selective. And if one of the main problems we have with controlling annual bluegrass and bentgrass is just there are a few selective herbicide options. And so very selective, very quick, you know, in terms of control. But one of the things we noticed is when we came in and made that rescue application, you could call it, of insecticide, is that a lot of times that annual bluegrass actually recovered fairly quickly. And so we did make progress on annual bluegrass control, but that progress uh, was more minor if you come in and arrest that damage sooner. It's, it's, it seems like kind of walking a fine line. Uh, you know, what what um, time of the year is that generally happening in which the yeah. turf manager would become uncomfortable with the the conditions? I mean, is that happening in June or July or May? What do you think that is in your estimation? Yeah, it's a good question. It's it's mid to late May. Mid to late um, May. And that's when we're that's when, at least in this area, we see a lot of the damage. Um, but, you know, what was interesting is when we come in, you know, you could have some plots that looked pretty ugly for when you made that application and then within two weeks they had recovered um, and that I think the main reason is you know the crowns of that annual bluegrass plant were still alive so the larvae the weevil larvae had done their best to chew off the, the leaves but being that it's still May it's still good annual bluegrass growing weather it actually recovered fairly quickly um, when we made that rescue application we got more control if we never sprayed an insecticide but in the case of this research, we were looking at a stand that was about 50% annual bluegrass, 50% bentgrass. So you're not going to be able to just let uh, let a severe amount of damage occur. I think if you have more annual bluegrass, or sorry, more bentgrass, if that bentgrass starts to comprise a really large portion of the of the stand, and you can really let the that those annual bluegrass weevils cause severe damage, probably more severe damage than we we let them causing this experiment, um, it becomes more effective. So that's actually what we're we're, we're starting a project this year. Um, in this case, Dr. Koppenhofer is leading it, kind of building on what we, we did, but we're looking at this approach with um, turf that has different levels of annual bluegrass in it. So 50% uh, annual bluegrass, 25, 10, and 0%. And we're gonna see you know, how this threshold quality 
you know, threshold damage approach. If it's more effective, maybe where there's only 10% annual bluegrass and you can afford to just let those weevils go to town. You know, that once you start to get into June, that bank grass really grows and can start to creep over those, those areas that were occupied by the POA. So um, that's what we're doing now. The other part of uh, Katie's work that is set to be published, sorry, not accepted yet, but um, is looking at uh, this threshold approach with different amounts of paclobutrazole, different paclobutrazole rates. And one of the things that she found is that um, if you layer this threshold approach with uh, especially mid mid rates of paclobutrazole, like say eight to 10 ounces, uh, eight ounces to the acre, um, then the two kind of work together um, and you get, you get more control than uh, without paclobutrazole use the weevil and the paclobutrazole together. Exactly. So, you know, you, you start making those paclobutrazole applications in the spring while you're you're um, letting the weevil do some damage. And then after you've come in to arrest the, the weevil development, um, you continue to use that paclobutrazole through the year. We got more control that way when we kind of coupled those approaches together. So again, you know, stuff we're already doing, integrated pest management, right? You take a biological option, you take a chemical option, and then, you know, even on top of that, you could be doing something cultural, like trying to promote the, the bentgrass growth. And we didn't have a lot of success with overseeding bentgrass in our research, but, you know, that can be a challenge sometimes to have con conditions-wise. You sort of never know when overseeding is going to work and not work, I think. So. so, yeah, some interesting work. I think there's a lot more to do, but it does show, I think, you know, the bottom line is it showed how uh, selective the weevil is for for bentgrass control or sorry poa control um, but also that you know if you if you aren't willing to tolerate a fair bit of damage you might not make a lot of progress in terms of controlling annual bluegrass um, unless you're willing to couple it with with a chemical approach like the, the trim it paclobutrazole um, the other thing that we haven't uh, investigated but I think needs to be considered is how do these uh, larvicide approaches right because that's what we're doing in this case we're not controlling adults how is that approach going to affect your annual bluegrass weevil management uh, in the long term and you know how does it factor in if you've got resistant weevils and that sort of thing so the insecticides we use are typically are effective against the uh, pyrethroid resistant weevils, but you know we're kind of getting outside of my area of expertise when we talk about insecticides. So, just a consideration. Yeah, I thought that paper was interesting in that you're 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 not controlling one thing to control another thing, and then you add in the growth regulator to help pro provide a competitive advantage. Yep. you know, to the bent grass. And I just thought it was a, a neat confluence of several different things that a lot of people may not consider. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. It's been fun. Katie did a really nice job with the work and it's been good to collaborate, you know, with uh, Dr. Kavanhofer and Murphy here at Rutgers. And luckily, you know, thanks to some more funding, we're going to be able to see that continue. So. Has that paper been published in a GCM or a similar type of an outlet outside of crop science? Now we've, we have an article that's kind of in the works at GCM, but um, we're actually waiting on the second paper to get published before we put it in GCM. One of the unfortunate things about the peer-reviewed process is that if you publish it in a trade journal before the peer-reviewed journal, they could say in the peer-reviewed journal, the peer-reviewed journal could say, well, this has already been published somewhere else, so you can't publish it. So we have to wait till both papers are in press until uh, GCM can release the article. So understand, understand. Yeah. Well, if somebody has more questions about 
the annual bluegrass control or if they have questions about uh, goosegrass control, do you have a resource that you can point them to, a uh, Rutgers resource or otherwise, or contact yeah, so information for more information? Specifically for the goosegrass control, we do have some fact sheets um, available. Um, if you Google, I guess, just, you know, Rutgers uh, goosegrass control extension, there, there's a fact sheet available there. Yeah, and then in terms of the annual bluegrass control, uh, we don't have anything uh, out yet for the, the the practitioner specifically related to this topic. But you know, the turfgrass weed control guide for professionals that comes out of Purdue every year. I think the new edition should be out probably by the time this airs. It'll already be out, but that's a great resource that that talks about all the strategies that are available for annual bluegrass control in there. So um, that's you know, it's a a really for about 20 bucks, you know, you can get a pretty extensive desktop kind of reference guide for, for annual bluegrass and all sorts of weed weed issues. And, you know, it's got efficacy tables for herbicides and all that sort of stuff. So especially in cool season turf, I think um, that's a valuable resource. That's led by Aaron Patton at Purdue. So, um, but collaboration from uh, many extension specialists in the Northern United States. So just Googling, you know, uh, Purdue Turfgrass Weed Control for Professionals will find will send you right to that. Well, we appreciate your time. I appreciate Thank the you. information today. Lots of good information. Thank you guys. Thanks for having me on. I enjoyed it. That wraps up our interview with Dr. Elmore. If you're interested in learning more about goosegrass biology or control strategies, links to helpful resources and Dr. Elmore's contact information can be found in the show notes. Turf Dudes exist to communicate important research findings and ongoing research initiatives to turfgrass managers as part of Harold's effort to grow a better world. If you enjoy the show, we want your feedback. If you have a topic you'd like for us to address or a person you'd like to hear from, please send it to us at turfdudes@heralds.com. That's T-U-R-P-H-D-U-D-E-S at heralds.com. While you're at it, please subscribe to our show on iTunes, YouTube Music, or SoundCloud. We'll see you next time.